You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, Lacrosse has a boot option for work and play, specifically the Alpha Burley Pro. Now, the Alpha Burley Pro delivers an athletic and glove like fit that will hold the foot tight into place. Now, I know a lot of us, when we're walking to the tree stand uh, up and down hills, we don't like it when our feet are slipping around in the boots. So, the Alpha Burley Pro, it's tight to your foot. It locks in the heel, and it allows you to be very mobile and very comfortable at the same time. It's very waterproof, and it comes in a variety of insulation options and camel patterns. Check out the Alpha Burley Pro at lacrossefootwear.com. All right, welcome to another Land and Legacy podcast, Habitat Heroes edition. I'm your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. And we have another very special podcast lined out right here on Sportsman's Nation. Now, you guys have joined us on 83 or, 83. I don't know, 83 podcasts so far uh, that or are Habitat more. or more. We know we have the hunting podcast um, that's also right here on the same channel, same place, both released on Tuesday, usually. And uh, you guys are probably aware of that. But this one's devoted to habitat, land, all things land management. And you've seen our property breakdowns that we've done in the past that has really covered a, a mixed bag of properties. We've gone from big properties, little properties, um, to middle-sized properties. Middle-sized properties. Yeah, there's the one I forgot. Cattle farms. <laughs> Cattle farms. farms. Um, a, a whole Suburban assortment farms, small farms, um, and so this one we wanted to go one step further, and instead of breaking down an entire property, we want to talk about breaking down a specific part of a property, and it's a part that a lot of us hunt, a lot of us deal with, and uh, it's it's frankly um, something we all, not all of us, I shouldn't say that, but a lot of us. When we hunt a food plot, we say, how can I make this food plot better? How can I make a good food plot a great food plot? Um, how can I take this big food plot and make it hunt small? And that's not a uh, demeaning statement by saying, let's make it hunt small. It's saying that a lot of times when we hunt um, big food plots, we get in that, oh man, they came out in that backside again um, and they didn't make it within range. Well, how can we ensure that a majority of the time when they come into the food plots, if they are big food plots, they still float that line of being in range or coming all the way into range? Well, let's just think about an ag field for, for instance. 
usually they're five plus acres and and, and at that range and, and size deer often come out in <clears throat> multiple places um and sometimes if you if you feel like you're in the right area they come out 60 yards one night 40 the next night and 100 the next night there's just no consistency but imagine having the tools and the techniques available to you and that's what we're discussing today to utilize not change that farmer's field at all but go outside of that that field the boundaries of where he's tilling and making his living and changing things to Gosh, make it I hunt hope not. better you said where he's tilling oh <laughs> I, i'm going with the majority of, of uh farmers if there, he's but, in illinois yeah um but uh, imagine those having that knowledge to be able to to then change those patterns to make that five plus acre field hunt like it is a small kill plot, and, and that's what we're going over today. And then some, providing you with the tools to make those destination food plots turn into or those those places that you just thought of that were gun stand only. We want to make those even better turn those into archery stands absolutely so you can hunt them throughout the whole year but before we do that we got a, a few things other uh other things we want to talk about matt showing today how'd it go yeah um property showing went really really well um a great great individual and um his well let's just i i don't i don't think they're married yet um are looking at a very large farm got listed and things went well things went really well they're very interested the sellers love to hear um their enthusiasm and it was kind of cool because the seller's older in age and he wants the farm to go to someone who's going to run it and operate it the, the guy has lived there his entire life does and he not have sons so no sons, um, no, no daughters to run it to or... pass it on. No, yeah. And, and so he wants to pass it on to someone who is going to take it and, and take care of the land. And I, I mean, he he's not even thinking greedy about it. Like you know, what I mean, it's not just like I just want I just want to sell out and, and move on with my life and and go. Like he's gonna live there, still retain eighty acres of the of the property. And he wants to see someone care for it like the way he's cared for it for his seventy some years of his life. It's like, man, I, I just I appreciate you. I appreciate your mindset. Um, even though it's tough for him to slow down because of health, he's still doing the right things. That's, That's awesome. Cool. So, hopefully, something good contract closing will come of it. Um, but it's just fun to be a part of that type of process and work with those people and, and see honestly the back and forth though like the energy and the stories shared and it's all about the land you know absolutely it doesn't matter if you're a cattle farmer hunter you all everyone has that connection to the land um, and that kind of leads right into where my my story um, goes with yesterday I was speaking at the you were in the real estate office I guess yep. one another reminder in that we are real estate agents so if you're looking to buy or sell um, some land, give us a shout. Yep. Wherever, whatever state, give yeah. us a shout. We can help you anywhere in the country. Um, so if you're thinking that we're Missouri boys and we can't help you, we can still help you. So give us a shout, info TV, and we will help you the best way we know how. 
my story is going into yesterday. Matt, you were in the real estate office with the Florida Day. I went to um, the WOW school at the Roaring River State Park. Which is the wonders of wildlife. Wonders of wildlife. And um, I spoke to several people that were interested in uh, the morning topic, Living on the Edge, which was our presentation, but it was a Mm -hmm. a three-and-a-half-hour discussion. And then in the afternoon, Land Management and Nature's Image. Um, And that was another three-and-a-half-hour segment. And I'm not kidding when I say this, um, and I'm not – I'm not meaning it anyway. I'm just saying it for, uh, as a matter of fact. But the oldest, the youngest person I had in my class was probably 58. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking with a lot of people that were retired, um, that were just trying to find some hobbies or pursuing their hobbies post career. And uh, several of them were master naturalists. Um, that was really interesting talking to them. Now, I think we get put in that box a lot being hunters that um, we are only thinking about the white-tailed deer. And so it was a great chance to sit down with some people that there was a few hunters in the classroom. There was several who weren't hunters, um, several landowners, and they all, we sat down for three and a half hours both in the morning and afternoon and had fantastic discussions and realized that and this was so wonderful to hear that even though the, the non-hunters in the room, they weren't anti-hunting, they didn't hunt, but they certainly could appreciate somebody who who hunted because of what they believed was the right reasons, not just a kind of a bloodthirst or um, kind of just a, uh, an ego-driven type of hunting. And after our discussion, or during our discussion, it was so cool, and it was a great reminder of the kind of a relationship i think we get divided a lot you're an environmentalist you're on one side you're Remember, a- it's it's so easy to label and it doesn't matter what you label your yourself as or you know what you label other people like everyone just feels like there has to be a title associated with a thought or a group of thoughts or a position or whatever you know yeah and so if you're an environmentalist you're over there and you don't agree with the hunter who's over here um, if you're a naturalist, you're over there, um, and we all have our little stereotype where we think that w- none of us really see eye to eye, and uh, it was kind of, you know, after three and a half hours, they were very appreciative and very, uh, I mean, just nonstop questions the whole time through, and really, it's kind of a great reminder that this type of management that we preach week after week, this holistic um, land management where Everything we do affects everything on that land in some way or another. So, it, well, positively, hopefully, if and that's where we preach so much of the stuff that is is going to affect in a very positive, positive note. There's a lot of things. There's probably more bad management out there than there is good management when it comes to the effects that, that it has on the native species, um, and so. After talking to them, it was just like, wow, we love the enthusiasm. We love that um, you guys are doing it in a way that you're thinking about the the uh, bees and you're thinking about the butterflies and you're thinking about the grasses and the soil health and the water quality, um, while all while you chase and, and um, hunt. It's a really cool, really cool thing. So I think the, the reason I bring that story up is just, just a um, – as hunters – 
as hunter numbers have decreased so much in the last five years, there's got to be some way that we join forces with people who may not be hunters, but we get them on our side. And I believe that a lot of it has to do with people understanding the hunter more and being and the hunter being more outspoken that it's more than just the hunt. Um, and so for the guys that are listening to this podcast, if you're here, you probably are here because you enjoy thinking about improving the land. And this holistic land management that we preach so much is uh, is what I believe. And frankly, I'd I'd be I'd be hard pressed to have somebody tell me otherwise that it's that it is the wrong way. So think about it, and hopefully you've enjoyed the podcast so far because we know we're driven to continue this for a long, long time. So quick sidebar: Did you get us another place to hunt? If you talk to the landowners and they loved it. <laughs> you know what's interesting is I didn't meet one of those people that had more than 40 acres. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, was, that's the thing. Uh, we talked about, you know, size of the property at the beginning of the podcast. It doesn't, it truly, truly does not matter how much land you have or how much land you have access to. You can do the right things on one acre. You can do the right things <laughs> that's what's or cool. the wrong things on on five is we had several people that had there was one lady right here in Nix actually that had mm-hmm. one acre yep and it was cedars and she's like so after this i've been wondering what i could do and that's one of the reasons why i signed up for this class um because i wondered what i needed to do for the wildlife and and the first five minutes i realized that i needed to cut the cedars down and let the grass grow and she said i used to have little blue it was funny because she goes i used to see little blue but i i haven't in a while but the cedars have gotten so thick and I'm like, what's that tell us? Yep. That's that's happening ding, ding, everywhere, ding, man. Ding, ding, ding. And uh then there was another couple down in southern Missouri that lived on a glade and they were they were seeing tons. They said that uh the previous landowner used to bush hog everything by their house mm. and they stopped and all of a sudden there's wildflowers everywhere. Yeah. So yeah. um yeah, I, I just it's very it's just, motivating. It, one thing that one lady said was uh I know that I don't own enough ground. I wish there was more people doing what we're talking about because on my 16 acres, I know I'm not doing much of an impact. And then it was like the dot, dot, dot. But that's not going to stop me. And so she was going home. to. She was along the uh, Missouri River around Columbia, Missouri. So I just had an idea. And this is like we share a lot of just random ideas on the podcast. We've, we've given away some we've, good ones. We've, had, we've, we've given away some awesome businesses. This one <laughs> – I need to write down. I'm not going to share it vocally because it's like, holy crap. I just had a really good idea. So remind me to tell you this after we're okay. done recording. We're, Sorry, guys. You're going to make a million dollars? <laughs> One million doll hairs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, we're going into season. Deer season has opened up. Whether we like much, it or not, we're here. Pretty much everywhere. And – it's a great time. Everybody's out in the woods. But once again, there's always something to learn, whether we're sitting in a tree stand, we're sitting in the office. Like over the year, there's, we can always be learning something. But since it's deer season, what can we learn while we're in the tree stand? And this is where our one of our favorite terms, woodsmanship, comes into play. Um, you think about you see a deer. Rather than just seeing a deer, figure out notice and observe where that deer came from where is he going and then ask the simplest question of all why 
be the little five-year-old kid that asks why all the time. Why is he doing that? What is leading him to go from point A to point B? And that is just one of the biggest reasons for this podcast of of going, why are they doing that? Where are they going? Where are they coming from? And then using that to our advantage. Well, this is specifically is a really important time in the whitetails world um, whether it's a buck, doe, fawn, it does not matter. But a lot of their movements right now um, are very planned. Like there's a reason why they're moving. Um, the rut is coming on. They are building up body fat to get them through the rut and prepare themselves for winter. Uh, so they're stocking up. Um, a lot of these changes are happening, but that translates into defined movements. And we can understand that if we ask these questions and find out why what's over there were they bedded there were they coming for them that area that slope this time of day were they going to this food source or that food source so asking those questions will increase your woodsmanship and knowledge of the land and how the animals use the land if you have that knowledge on any piece of property, you're going to use that as a hunter to be successful. And it's just a matter of asking the questions and digging and finding out the resource. Maybe maybe you have to wait, honestly, till February time frame to figure out the true answer and go in to, the, to these areas that you don't want to penetrate too deep into and, and booger up the activity that you're seeing, but you wait till after season and it comes full circle. You're like, okay, I got it. That's why they were doing that. And next year you hunt them and you kill them. But you have to ask these questions and be a woodsman and observe be and a use very to your detailed advantage. observer. Um, listen more than call. Uh, I heard one the other day that said it was the there's a reason why God gave you one mouth and two ears. He wants you to listen twice as much as he wants you to speak. Oh gosh. It's, it's the same thing with, with like hunting. You want to be observing and listening rather than trying to make things happen yourself. Um we got a couple of the the common things that cross our mind or that we experience with hunting food plots. So this fall, when we're hunting food plot, complaining about um, the bucks being too far. So ba- basically, yeah, the, these next little points are all going to be accomplished by utilizing what we're going to talk about later in the podcast. Yes. Yeah, so like later in the podcast, problems. hang with us. Later in the podcast, we have a we have our our traditional. Label one, one, two, three, yeah, and and what they mean to that to that image, and and so we can all learn together. Um, so some of the things that we experience is, uh, you you say that deer is too far. You see a, a good deer, or you see a doe, and you're always like, ah, I've been seeing it. It's just too far. Well, that's a learning experience. That's not a time to complain and say, hey, uh, that's this really food plot's great. It's going. Why, what is it that makes that deer stay too far? Especially if it happens multiple times. There's got to be a better way. The next one, big plot, and they hang out in the back corner. Mm -hmm. That's one of the most common ones when you're hunting big food plots is going, well, they came out, but they were out in that back corner and I can't get there. Okay, what can I do to fix that? Or or why are they there? Is it just because cover's close by? Can I, can I change the way there's cover around the other edges of the field. What can I do to, to replicate that success of that back area, but bring it to an area where I can hunt and access it. Next one is the skinny plot. They're in there 
and then they're out just as much as they're in. They're back and forth. Um, you see them feed in, and you see them feed right back out. Um, why are they doing that? Are they coming in and out at the same points? Uh, makes you scratch your head a lot, but it, it makes you, if you dig deeper and, and do these basically critical observations, uh, allows you to be that much better of a hunter. So that's a common thing with those skinny plots is you see deer, deer filter in. And some, a lot of times you see it in like um, middle of the day or just kind of odd times because the cover's so close. Did you read posts? On down there, <laughs> one oh. of them is uh, seeing deer oh, the, middle, middle of the, of the day. day. Yeah. yeah, but that's one of those scenarios where in a skinnier plot because they don't have to leave the cover too far. They come right there, grab a quick bite to eat, and they go right back and, and change their position of a bed if they're bedding close to that skinny yes. food plot. And, and even when they're when it's a skinny one and they're in there and they're out and it looks like they're eating browsing on that food plot the same way they're browsing on the native vegetation tells us there's a couple things that can tell us but uh that's something we can address and look at when we're when we're considering food plots making them better next one deer use the plot but it's only after dark uh, I, I would say 100 percent of hunters can relate to that right there. Yeah. And, and I would say one of two things. It's either distance from quality bedding, secure bedding, or that food plot, food source is not in a secure area. So they need the cover of darkness to be able to use that to their advantage and feel comfortable when... And we have ways to fix that. We certainly do. Um, and it could be um, the problem is in a place where you got to... It's in your house. Uh, it's usually in a... There might be one or two of them. I don't know. You may have Are you more toilets. No. Nope. Oh, <laughs> uh, you 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 may have one to two on on average, uh, but you go into that room and then you look and there's like a shiny thing on the wall and you kind of wave at it and it waves back at you. That's mm. where the problem's at. It's you. You're oh, in you're the, the mirror. You're the guy. Yes. You're the one who's screwing it up and making them come out after, after dark. dark. Yes. Yeah. Um, or, or it's people just like you driving by and scoping it out every <laughs> afternoon, yeah. watching along yeah. the road, doing that slow creep of the, on the gravel. And or it's your brother taking the vacation days um, and not telling you he's taking vacation days. That's right. That's right. That's a big was, problem for us. Was that a uh, was that a dig at your brother? <laughs> no, he doesn't take vacation because it's it's just given to him with all the national <laughs> holidays. Yeah, <laughs> whatever those holidays. Tomorrow are. he's off work because of Columbus Day. <laughs> Give me dog. a break! Oh gosh, he can thank Columbus. So uh, the next one, they seem to use the field more during the middle of the day. We covered just a little bit earlier, but that's another one that can be multiple reasons, um, and. and just like using it in the cover of darkness, though, this one can be the middle. This this one can be associated with danger and security as well. Um, and it's also um, close, very close to bedding areas. Very, very close, adjacent almost, and, and tough to get in between that bedding area. Nearly impossible if they're in those fields or in the middle of the day. You you can't hardly access those areas. Yep. Um, that transition area because there's probably not a transition area. So when you're looking at when we're when we're really trying to improve these food plots, we're trying to make them the best they can. We're we're getting every bit of juice out of the squeeze. Um, we have to address the needs to the area, the food cover, access, security, water. What is happening in that area, and what can we do if it is limited? What can we do to to fix it? And uh, so there's a whole lot of stuff. So with the amount of time with a food plot 
We devote, as hunters and land managers, we devote so much time to food plots. And a lot of times it's it can be wasted. We're wasting money. We're wasting time. We're wasting hunts um, on those food plots if we haven't looked at it in the whole picture and said, how can I maximize this? Because um, obviously we want to maximize our return. How many times do we see food plots where they put a little bit of money into it, a lot of time into it, and it fails? And if they could have just looked at it, step back and take a look at it, we could have, you could have seen that it was going to fail. Happens a lot. A lot of times it's, it's, it, it, well, there's, I can't put it on one thing. There's, there's a long list of reasons why food plots fail, and some of them are so common. But we, we fail to look at it, and we end up having failed food plots. Number one, with food plots, so we can maximize our return, access. Obviously, my gosh, you guys shouldn't be surprised that access is one of the first ones. But if you can't get there without busting deer, it's not worth hunting. So if you want to have a great food plot, that's one of the biggest things, if not the biggest thing, is access. How many times is one of the best food plots in the back of the farm and you have to go through five food plots to get there. It's not worth it. Usually you're going to have to find a better access. Um, and of course, since this food plot or this podcast is called making a good food plot, a great food plot access is crucial to that. So consider your access, Matt. Next one. Soil samples. It's silly, but just take them. Do it. Oh gosh. Um, you got, you it, don't put that much time and energy into, and um, it's a crap ground, and it's cheap. Just, and it's a, do you it. do it during the time of the year, usually when uh, you're, you're scratching your head, wondering what in the heck you do have I cabin do. fever anyway. Yeah, get out there and do it. Um, understanding the the soil itself, and I, not everyone is an agronomist. Um, we're not an agronomist, but educate yourself on soil soil types. Um, understand you know, the the qualities of it. It's too wet, too dry, too rocky. Um, what is it that the soil needs and what amendments should be applied to make it the best soil that it can be. Uh, but understanding what you have and where you're starting from is key. Yeah. I To me, I, I did, awkward pause. <laughs> chirp, 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 <laughs> chirp. Um, uh, to me, that's that we see that one far too often. Um, wet areas trying to be planted and sedges are coming up and can't figure out what we need to spray them to, so our clover's. Um, producing at maximum level, um, too dry. We see that one a lot. I, it's just it's so it's so easy to overlook, but my gosh, it's one of the easiest steps. But um, we've covered this a lot. But it's important that we priorita- prioritize our time and management. Um, I mean, obviously, you, we devote time, and we're always wanting more time and wanting more money um, to put into our land. So it's crucial that we look at the side and say, where's my money best spent? Where's my time best spent? But if we're devoting our money and time into bad food plots, we are really missing the boat. So once again, understand that's where a good, uh, that's where we can come in with our consulting. Um, that's where our podcast can come in and helping you understand where's your time and money best spent. Um, nobody wants to put a bunch of money into a failed, a failed, uh, project so i would i would say um not not to sidebar anything but one of the biggest restraints that everyone that we work with from from a client standpoint um 
and it's not giving away any personal information, but it's time. Yeah. Whether it's it's work, whether it's family, it doesn't matter. Um, this stuff takes time. So by prioritizing and making that um, a priority, it's funny. You have to prioritize. You have to prioritize to to make a priority list of things to do. But yeah. you have to do it. You have to do it, or, or you you won't find success. Um, Small plots with big hopes. That's a. I mean, that's a priority. On uh, should be on a priority list. We plant a small food plot, and we expect to have um, Mark Dury caliber deer standing in the food plot because we've seen it on a TV show, and and a lot of times it's it's not been managed correctly. It's a failed food plot, and it ends up just looking like crap. And we had high hopes, and they got crushed. So make sure that you have realistic goals. Exclusion cages. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Put them out. That's a, uh, like, like one, soil one samples. Simple, one, yeah, one of, the, one of the simplest things to do in a, in a, in a food plot and, and understand how much the food plot is being utilized beyond – like I'd like – I honestly like a exclusion cage sometimes more than trail cameras because trail cameras – if if the terrain of that field doesn't allow you to monitor at all, an exclusion cage I think will tell you almost a little bit more than what that um, what that trail camera will it'll tell you about the forages, how they're responding to the forages, the response of the forages to the deer, the pressure and everything. Um, may not give you the exact time that a deer is coming out, but that exclusion cage tells you more than just if they're coming in and eating it. Yep, there's and, a lot of and, cool things to learn from that. And then what you learn from that. Shoot deer when needed. Yep. Um, we all love to watch deer, but that can get out of hand really quickly if we're not harvesting and helping, especially if we're doing all this stuff to try and remove other predators and coyotes and we're trapping and we're like, oh, there's just too many deer around here. And uh, and then we're not shooting them when we're out there. So make sure that if you, do, if you are noticing that all your food plots are just hammered and the exclusion cages show drastic differences – um, the native vegetation is struggling. It's probably time to shoot some deer. Yep. We are finally here. We're at the point now where we're talking about one food plot in general that we are breaking down. So we talked about, you know, property overviews that we've done before, 1 through 10 or 1 through 11, whatever it was, talking about these different points. But today's topic is about a food plot and making a tough-to-hunt food plot or a or a food plot that hunts just mediocre making it hunt like perfect making every deer that comes to or in and out of that food plot would you say we're making food plots great again i would say we're making food plots great again because every deer that comes in and out of the food plot before it enters that food plot has decisions that it makes where how it's going to enter where it's going to walk to once it enters and we have to use that to our advantage and design food plots and what's outside of the food plots to your advantage, to the hunter's advantage. And we're doing that today. We're taking a very well, – a lot of times we look at properties from a, we say, 30,000-foot view and, and, and look at it in its entirety. But today is zooming in and looking at specific food plots and we're looking at how to make them perfect. It's basically a 100-foot view this time. Yeah, we're we're treetop level basically. So and, and number one, we got to start with the food plot. That's right. Once we have that, for us, 
Um, we've got our food plot. We picked it out. The Glady Cutoff. Um, this is on the Prairie Hollow property too. So we're we're giving out just absolute everything. This is not a client's property. This is the way we are designing a food plot. The first food plot you get to on on the property so far. This is how you. This is how we are designing it. And it, and Top if you can find it on Google Earth, um, you know the uh, wind direction and and every everything about this plot. So you could get in this redneck blind and hunt it. Most thank, likely. Thank goodness, uh, Google Earth isn't isn't uh, alive. That's why I said it. <laughs> it worked once. Well, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like when somebody says, "I'll hit you with this" or whatever, and you say, "Yeah, you'll do that once." Once. Um, um, so it's a brand new food plot. That's why he's saying you won't ever find it because yep. it hasn't been updated yet. But the brand new food plot been opened up. It's 1.75 acres. It's on a high ridge and then off off the ridge drops in elevation. Um, and, and what we're going to talk about a lot today is the elevation changes and terrain changes and how to utilize these techniques and tools to complement the terrain as deer are entering, exiting, and walking and utilizing this food plot in, in in general, so I think this is the first time we've ever broke down one of our own properties. Um, didn't it? Or well, we did. We did we Prairie Hall property part one and two. Like well, we talked about it, like why, but we never like broke it down into individual numbers and our strategy specific to that area, so they didn't know where stands were or anything like that. No, no. So this one is very specific, um, and hopefully you guys enjoy it. I know. I'm excited to hunt this one. That's for sure. I'm excited. Hasn't been to hunting yet? No. Nope. No. Nope. Not at all. So number number one, obviously, is is just the food plot. Like, got got to start with the food plot, guys. So yeah. number one is super simple food plot. Number two is the beautiful redneck blind. And they saw us actually put this together in one of the films this year. Film, Film number, number four. Number four. There yeah. we go. And so you saw us put the redneck blind together. Um, you have no idea where we put it. It was actually on the southeast, kind of east-southeast side. Um, this food plot is kind of, I don't know, diamond-shaped. It's very it's like a kind of a weird. It's a weird shape. Um, but it's on the east side, kind of on the south side. So, <laughs> and sort of on the west side. <laughs> I, th- I think they get it now. Oh, yeah. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There it is on Google yeah. Earth. Yeah, I <laughs> see it. So, it's uh, it's on the east side, that's for sure. Um, it's it's where if you're looking on on the on Facebook or the Sportsman's Nation picture, it's where dot number two says. That's right. That's <laughs> easiest way to find Southeast. it. Southeast. Yeah. Um, and and that's really kind of our our plan with with this food plot. Now understand that there is a time for a blind, and there is a time where we believe a tree stand might be best. I, obviously, we're not going to put a blind right in the middle of a timber lot. Um, you can do that, but for us, you've got a lot of cutting to, to put in lanes for the f- for the blind. This one sets up great for the redneck because it's one of those spots where it's we call this the glady cutoff. We know it's going to be great late season because we have great south-facing and west-facing slopes just south of here, um, and it's pretty doggone close to the food plot. Um, but it's also because there's not many trees that are big enough to hang in on this side of the field. This property itself, e- even though there's trees everywhere, it's Sp- funny. They're, they're very thin. On like, the ridge tops, on, especially. On the ridge tops, and, and we hunt a lot on the ridge tops. So it, it can be tough, honestly, even though there's hundreds and thousands of trees to choose from. 
to find the right one. So here, um, definitely a blind situation is an awesome feeling because, and then again, we talked about it late season. This, this food plot is, is going to get hunted quite a bit more and it's going to be cold. We know that. And, and we want to, you know, we want to use that blind to our advantage from that aspect. And, um, and it's one of those plots. It's the first one up on the road so far um, that it's going to be easy to get people to it. Oh, and yeah. it's a short walk, so we can get people into this blind that have never been um, super easy. And that, that translates right into point number three, which is the access and the road. You can't tell it from the image, but where the blind is placed and where the road is placed, there is, I would say, probably 10, 15-foot little elevation change. At um, least. At least from the – and this is from the edge of the field where the blind's at, not out into the middle of the food plot. So what that allows us to be able to do is walk that road very quietly in from further south, walk that road in, be completely below the food plot, and then shimmy up through the little sliver of timber up to the steps of the blind and get in very quietly. Um, and that – it is a huge part of the success or future success that we're going to see with us accessing the blind or new hunters, whoever, older hunters, getting there quietly and effectively and out of sight. We've talked about it before on tons of podcasts is using the elevation, not skylining yourself to enter and exit food plots. And this one is perfect design. So we've got the food plot. We've got a hunting location. We're going to talk about another one here in a second. But then we've we've just outlined how awesome the access is. And I don't think you've talked about it yet, but the road system on the entire Prairie Hollow property, we're going to have multiple food plots in it. This is going to be the dream property for a lot of guys, including ourselves. Um, and we have multiple food plots, over uh, double-digit food plots when it's all said and done. And we're only going to have a road going through less than three of them because the road is going to travel around and basically follow the side slope and um, just off the crest of the of the ridges all the way around the property and not drive right through the middle of any of the food plots or very few of the food plots. And that translates back to those points that we talked about earlier when we talked about okay, when are the deer using your food plots? Are they only coming in after dark? Are they only in the middle of the day? Those type of things, getting that road system, your constant travel outside of the food plots allows deer to use them at the timely, the times when you're going to be effective hunting, not just at dark. Think about whenever you go and hunt a food plot and you climb down to leave that's still just prime time where you drive out and see tons of deer in your food plots if you're driving through them what well doesn't it just make sense to be driving out of the food plot and driving somewhere else where the deer have the food plot to themselves and you're not blowing them out of there and then forcing them to come back again um however minutes or hours later so that's it's just going to be crucial to where i mean we're only going to be 50 yards in this food plot when we drive by but that 50 yards is is going to be totally fly, fine because we have so many other great things that are going to be happening to where they're still going to feel comfortable in that plot even though they can hear us just right there. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So this is this, it's funny because this is about the point when everybody else stops working food plots. Like yeah. 
okay, I've, I've got my food plot. It's an opening. I've got it planted. I've got a stand or a blind, and I've got my access. And then it's kind of a hands-off approach. And that's points one through three. And we have eight more to go to cover and all the things. sub points inside of yeah, this. Yeah, all the things that are going to only increase and serve to benefit the hunter and the deer and the effectiveness of that food plot with these other eight points. Um, so hang on tight because there's a bunch more coming. And again, that's what that's what's crazy to me is that's where I would say 95% of food plotters stop at in a technique and a tools kind of mindset. They, they mentality. put a food plot in a good area and call it good. Call her and and it. It works. It works. It works. I don't want to take anything away from that. That's good. That's awesome. But imagine what, how, how much better it could be with, with the rest of the list implemented on this food plot. That's the scary part. So, number four. If you, and this goes with, if you have a food plot of this side, usually you want to hunt it on multiple wins or with multiple <laughs> strategies. Yeah. And so, for us, a 1.65 or almost 1.75 acres that's that's a pretty good food plot for us, and I think that's kind of right in the wheelhouse of a of a great stand size or plot size because we have the ability to to grow a lot of forage, but it's not so big that it's it's tougher to hunt. But this is still kind of the most popular size in that one and a half to three acres to where you still fight the ah they're out of range. That's a big that's a big food plot. That's a pretty good size food plot. So um, we have. On point number four, another stand location, and it's like okay, I can understand how you, how you could get there. But from the picture, you, you don't understand quite the the lay of the land. You see, you know, okay, four's on the edge of the food plot, and it looks like it drops off. And okay, it's that is a southwest facing slope, more westish than uh, everywhere else. So okay, I kind of see what they're doing there, but. The point that needs to be made and the reason why that stand is right there um, will come in just a second on, on point number six um, as we as we disclose what is there. So, Did we say what wind we're hunting the redneck blind on? I'm not sure if we did. Uh, so the redneck blind is set up great for west, mm-hmm. northwest, and even a north wind. Yeah. So we have multiple winds that we can hunt the redneck blind. And, and that redneck, again, like we talked about, it's going to be very effective late season, and we get we tend to get a lot of those west northwest winds then, and those usually bring in the cold fronts, and that's the perfect and even time the zones. north wind, and yes. that's where this is going to be killer because you'll see why in a little while when yes. we explain um, a lot about travel patterns. Yes, um, the stand location number four is set up great for southwest and west winds. Um, you throw in that slight southwest. And it's set up great because we can now hunt this food plot on four different winds. Um, And it's all going to depend on where we feel or where uh, we believe the deer are bedded based on that time of the year, that time of the day. Yeah. So, again, don't just say one and done. Think about setting up the food plot itself for multiple winds to be able to be that much more effective throughout the whole entire season. So we've got the additional stand there on number five, number four, excuse me. Number five is to indicate the wind direction, the dead zone, if you will. I don't even like calling it a dead zone because habitat wise, it's not a dead zone, but from a hunting standpoint, 
it's kind of a dead zone. That's where the wind is going to be going from the blind where we're hunting with that west northwest wind. But we're not expecting deer to be coming from when there. When we play it by the numbers and we say, okay, numbers-wise, a majority of the deer are going to be bedded in these much more preferred bedding areas versus an area that's going to be a woodland. It's going to have great cover and forage, but it's not going to be the it, the prime yeah. um, bedding and that's where we go into, okay, what's, what's there? Why is that spot better than the others? And you look at that, and the, f- the road goes pretty doggone close through the middle of where this dead zone is. So if there is a deer there, as we're going up through there, it would most likely be alerted and go to the other side, the east-facing or the eastern ridge. So it's, it's this area. This is, this is the area that our scent's going to, basically. We have to think about where our scent's going, and we're so on top of our scent control that once we get out of that 200-yard range, we're very confident that we're not alerting that many deer. They may smell us, but they're not concerned that we are a threat because we have taken care of our clothes and gear to where it's not we're not alerting them with our scent as much as we could be doing. So that's, that's point number five, and, and – talked about okay it's going to be good quality habitat because prescribed fires could be run through there um, but we're not expecting deer to be bedded there woodlands roughly 50 percent open canopy whereas these bedding area thickets and a glade is going to be more close to 20 percent canopy closure and 80 percent sunlight so the amount of growth that's going to be on the ground accessible to deer for them to bed in up against and all the treetops in and around those areas, especially in the bedding area thicks that we're cutting out of the timber, those op- those areas are going to have way more cover on the ground level, and that's why they're going to be the preferred bedding areas over top of the good quality habitat that's already out there where 0.5 is versus 0.6 and 7 where one is a bedding area thicket and one is a glade. So that's why they're going to be bedded in 6 and 7 versus 5. And five, even though it's logged, a lot of the big logs, this whole area is being logged. What's the difference between five and six and seven? Is five is the logs are getting removed on a majority of the trees, and there's still treetops there, but they're going to burn up pretty quickly over time um, with our prescribed fire plan. Seven, six, and seven is where we've cut a lot of trees. So there's going to be some decent sized logs laying on the ground or hinge cut to where um, there's a lot more diversity of cover um, available in those areas. So it's a more more, optimal And more sunlight. And more sunlight. So So that's the power of sunlight. So number six, we gave it away. That is a clear cut on the northwest side of the ridge, which is a... And we've called them bedding thickets as well. So a bedding thicket, clear cut to the northwest of this food plot. And it's not... This is one of the biggest things about food plots is cover and cover slash bedding in close proximity. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times we plant, I, I know I've been guilty of it, where you get a lot of deer moving into a food plot after dark or they're getting there um, way after dark and you're like, why are they not why are they not here before then? Well, it's not that they're not moving early during daylight. It's just that they have to cover such a big area to get there. We talked about that a few podcasts ago about Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lebanon farm we hunt is where they, they, they're they coming, but and they may be on their feet 45 minutes before dark, 
but they have a long ways to get there because there's not great bedding cover right like there close. It's like between a, a 5K and a marathon. Yeah. <laughs> they got a long way to go. Um, yeah. So that's why six is there to cut down on the time that they're traveling. And, and it sounds – it doesn't sound silly um, because – from a transition area, there, there's a very small transition area in between six and and the food plot, um, the bedding area thicket. But because of the terrain and because of the road system, we still can get in between on the edge of the food plot and and the, if you will, the edge of the clear cut, very stealthily. Yeah, very stealthily, and we can kill a deer whether they're on their way up to the food plot, kind of in this. Um, mixture zone. We'll cover that in a second as they make their way out to the food plot or shoot them in the food plot once they get all the way out. doesn't matter, but they're going to be bedded close, cut down the distance, have more daylight activity in that area. And it is more of a, I would say it's a Western West slope, yep. Western facing slope. So it's going to have good sun exposure or decent sun exposure and in even slightly northwest on that very that very edge over here on this little bit south of uh, of where the actual dot is, it's it gets a little bit kind of northwest where they could easily find some shade in the middle of the day. So yeah, it's going to be a great little bedding area. And this is we oh expect man. a lot of deer from the west coming. Did you in this did you plot. hear that crack? What that can of worms? Because we might as well talk about it because. People will hear this and wonder the difference between how do we know that's where the bucks are or that's where the does are. So oh, oh. we'll go in and say buck bedding versus doe bedding. We're looking at it from the optimal bedding area, and if it's great bedding, we know that bucks and does will bed there. Now, we don't know if it's just going to be constantly does or constantly bucks, but we know that they're going to be relatively close to that area because that is the best bedding in the area. And I say it's going to be a mixture of all. Yeah. Because it changes throughout the whole year. It changes all the time. And, and, and it's, it's not a, the size of a living room. It's not the size yeah. of your house. It's the no. size of a couple of a couple of houses yeah. or your house in a big yard. And, and that, that's, a good, that's a good point. That, that area six, that, that bedding area thicket that was created – uh, there's not a uniform shape necessarily. Kind of let the the trees that are present in that general area guide as to what needs to be cut, what needs to stay. But it's we it's actually a, went down on a shelf, yeah, on a side slope and found a little shelf and cut on top of the shelf and then just off the crest and then went down the crest a little ways and then kind of made another little tail off the of the shelf all on the other all, side. I'd say it's about an acre. That's, Probably that's cut pretty good. Yeah, cut pretty hard in there, um, but it doesn't have to be uniform. It, it there's it, not a you could start it out as a half an acre and then build on that the next year and cut yeah. it and make it a full acre. That's right. That's right. But as we get into position number six in relation to number seven, mm. Um, mm, this is where mm. the magic happens with the food plot. Um, so so if you're looking at the map, you've got one bedding area kind of on the northwest side of the food plot, and the one on the south. So as we transition to talk about number seven, where do we think a buck is going to travel? Don't give it away yet. That's coming up, I think. Oh, it's going to be all the, 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 the whole, whole food plot. 
Because that's so what it's about. We talked about six. Now we're going to seven. Seven is a much bigger betting area that's naturally occurring. It is the reason it's called Glady Cutoff is because seven is basically the glade. And if you don't know what a glade is, it's basically a dry, shallow soil grassland with a mix of other species. Um, so we may have some scattered oaks and some scattered shrubs, but a majority, uh, there's consistent grass and wildflowers through this area. So it's prime bedding. Um, and Especially it is, in the wintertime. Yes, exactly. Because, and the reason it's a glade, and we said it's dry and shallow soil, uh, it gets exposed to a lot of sunlight. So during the winter months, it's great bedding. During the summer, it's hot as Hades down there. But uh, <laughs> I don't go there in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> during the winter, it's great bedding because there is so much sunlight and deer can stay warm there by um, soaking in the sun, but also the snow melts there before it melts anywhere else. Yes. So that is a powerful, powerful, naturally occurring area that we've got to utilize to our advantage and take note of. And there's a beautiful little ridge that comes and leads off of the southwestish corner of this plot and works its way works its way down to that glade. What do you think? It's probably 200 yards, the edge probably. of the glade, from the edge of that food plot. Um, so not a huge distance, but can't really be hunted effectively because of the slope and everything. Um, they're just going to treat that area as a sanctuary, utilize it as a great bedding area, especially late winter, and let the deer naturally work up to the food plot. But if there's bedding on both sides of the food plot, this is what we're getting at. But wait, there's more. <laughs> it's not just great bedding. It's the where it's where the bedding is located in relation to the food plot. We have taken advantage of a naturally occurring bedding area and sanctuary with the glade and positioned a food plot on top of a ridge so we have consistent wind and then we place that food plot in relation with the naturally occurring bedding area and then we made another one on the other side north of it to where now we have a food plot between two bedding areas, which Boom. is prime dynamite. time, prime time, prime opportunity to be killing bucks. If that's what you're after in open area food plots, because what are they going to do? If I was a deer and let's call this like the cafeteria and then there's dorm rooms on either side. I'm going to go to the cafeteria to spot out a girl, make sure she's not in the cafeteria before I go to the other dorm room. You know what I mean? Like, it's a naturally, like, it's already on your way. You might as well check it out. Might and as well. check, grab a bite to eat if you want, see if she's there, and say, oh, no, she's at her dorm. I'm going there. And make your way down to number seven and, and check it out. But it's naturally occurring. Deer naturally have this travel pattern already. We're just using that information, that sign, that woodsmanship to enhance this area with better, more bedding and forage. And so how does a buck move through the landscape when he's looking for a receptive doe? Does he do it based on, does he listen for her? Does he call for her? Or does he Wouldn't that be look cool for if whitetails bugled? <laughs> it would be so awesome. <laughs> I never go west. <laughs> Man, yeah. they all start doing that. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be cool. They would, uh, 
they follow their nose and their sight, but nose is one of the most important parts of that. And so how do you use that to your advantage? If you go to your stand and the wind is perfect in your favor, blowing straight in your nose and going straight back, and the deer are coming with the wind at their back, they're not, that's not in their favor, so they're not going to do that very often because if they did, they would get killed as a year and a half old. A mature deer or or even a, a smart deer, which all of them are smart, um, they're going to use the wind to their favor. So if we have a westerly wind or a north wind, something with um, north and west into it, which is exactly what we're looking for um, to hunt our, our stands and even the southwest wind, they're going to... They're going to walk more on the eastern side of where they're going to where they can use that scent, uh, that wind, to scent check where they're going. So so what you're saying is, to break it down in a visual, if you're looking at the map, is, okay, we've got bed in area 6 and we've got bed in area 7. If we're in spot number 2 and it's a west wind to favor us, it's also going to favor them to check number 6 on the east side of that working basically on the edge of the food plot, then coming directly across the middle of the food plot to work their way back down to seven yep. and expose themselves completely across the middle of the food plot where we're sitting in the redneck blind number two with bows in our hand and a 30-yard shot. Yes, or if they're coming from seven, working their way up to six, they're going to, we haven't talked about it yet, but they're going to walk to the eastern side of that food plot and go up the edge of it and dump back into the woods in the very north north part of it and drop down to that uh, that bedding area, that bedding thicket. Now, that's incredible to have that much working for you. And I, I, I think we need, go, we need to go back and say, okay, remember we talked about points one through three? That's where most food plots get the attention and get stopped. This is points only six to seven, and we're already designing it in a way that during the rut, deer will be working in our favor based on the way the layout of just bedding areas and proximity to a food resource, a newly created food resource is. We're taking a stand and making it incredible. We're but making wait, it to where you're going to have to hunt all day. Yeah. Dog wait, there it. is more. <laughs> How do you, so I mentioned it and you mentioned it. Why are they going to the eastern side of the food plot? Well, they're using their nose. But there's another reason why they're doing that, and that's because we forced them to use their nose and to go to the east side of the food plot because we talk so much about edge feathering. Boom, shakalaka. We've got um, open and closed edge feathering. I'm going to say this real quick. These next three points, I guess it would be 8, 9, and 10, are – I think of them as like the primary colors and – you can do so much with them, and they all work together to do so much for this food plot. Um, it, like it's like a the jack of all trades. Like you have, but you have to have you, each, you have to have. If you have one of them, okay, cool. But if you have all three of them, now it's like mind blown, yeah. if you will. And and they can be applied to more than just food plots. Oh yeah, they can be applied to almost anything we do out there in a way of basically the same cuts. Um, scattered through the timber that may create a natural fence. Um, it really, you can use them so many ways. So if you're not using them, get to it. Because um, this is this is really what it's all about when it comes to steering deer and using um, habitat management to 
fill more tags. So number eight is closed edge feathering. And, and we ought to do a little bit of a line around this, this map. Oh, um, it will be. Okay. To show you where closed edge feathering starts, where it stops, and where it is in relation to the open edge feathering because that will give you – it's like a light bulb. You're, you're basically creating a road map for deer to travel. And when we're talking about open and closed edge feathering, closed is just trees along the edge. And you can actually see it here in the in the um, picture. You can see <coughs> not and as dense And this is not complete either. Yeah, this, this is, is step one. We did the first we did the first step in the edge feathering and just to get it in our favor, but next year we're gonna step it up and do even more to make it even better. So so the closed is dropping the trees parallel with the edges of the field so it creates that fence like um and feel to the we basically shut the gate yeah gates closed they're not entering and exiting there because it's too difficult it will grow up and be super thick and and there's going to be logs laying in the way um whereas if we look at the open edge feathering those trees are perpendicular to the food plot Basically saying, hey, swinging that gate wide open, and this is now where you're going to enter and exit the field because it's that much easier. We all see deer take the path of least resistance in areas that are secure, and they just go around a log typically or to up to a barbed wire fence, and the lowest spot, that's where they cross because it's the easiest. I totally get it. I understand. I'd rather go up two flights of stairs than 15 you know, I, I'm going to take the the. You'd path. rather take the elevator than the flight of stairs. <laughs> Here we go. Because <laughs> I was going to say, two flights doesn't get you to the same places. No, 15. it don't. <laughs> I bailed you out. There yeah. You go. So <laughs> I'm taking the elevator. Screw the 15 steps. That's why we flights. call you pudgy. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> you know, pudgy about me. Um, so you got to use that to your strength and give the oh, give them the open gate appearance to these areas. Um, number nine, and, and and now we're further enhancing where they're walking to enter and and check these bedding areas, but where they're entering and exiting that food plot. And there is a a little bit of a spine on this in the open food plot that also helps to predict um, where deer are naturally going to want to come in and out of the food plot at, and where we're going to um, be opening up the edge feathering. Yes, and, and also, um, not only is this edge feathering created to be great at steering the deer, it's also great habitat-wise because now we're getting a lot more sunlight into that portion of the timber, which means we have a lot more plants growing um, in that four foot and under to where we're creating more of a screen. We're creating more browse around the edges where they can get to it. Um, we're creating more habitat for small game species. We're, we're creating more of a woodland setting for birds. Um, we're we're just overall we're the the food plot's going to be better along the edge because there's less trees, less root system, taking nutrients away from the food plot and allowing more light to reach those areas that typically get shaded for more parts of the day. That's right. And so all that said, we're winning all the way around. You ever get sick of winning? <laughs> Never. <laughs> Making food plots great again. <laughs> so then you have the open edge feathering, which is the same. We're getting the same habitat benefits, but it's not 
it's not keeping the deer out of uh, out of the food plot or boxing boxing them into where they don't feel comfortable going into that food plot because they're going to be under attack and they don't have an escape plan. Mm-hmm. The and- next thing would be the screen. What do you mean by that? We are going to plant a screen. We, of course, have our our friends at Pure Air Natives have worked with us to design a blend of native species that are providing not only benefits on the habitat side, benefits us in forage um, by seeds and plant growth, um, during the summer months, but also we're getting height out of those species that are going to withstand through the winter um, to where we are screening it off um, the, the vision, the sight, to where now a deer who could have just, if we stopped at number one and two and three, they could have just stood on the edge and looked across that field and said, oh, there's nothing in there. there. I'll walk down through the timber now. Now we're forcing them, if they feel like there is a deer out there, they're going to have to at least come to the food plot, come into the food plot to check it out. They and have to get, you have to block out that visual screen for them to look all the way across that food plot. And that's, that's, right. that's what this does. It, I mean, it's strictly a visual blocking area for them. You will still be able to see deer from an elevated platform, whether it's a tree stand or a redneck blind, in these areas, but for them on ground level, they're not able to visually see and scan with their eyes the entire food plot. So that makes them take those extra steps and come out to the food plot if they're not already traveling between bedding area six and seven and, naturally. And you time that with, or you team that up with the edge feathering, which created more of a screen um, because of the amount of growth of the species and the and the stump sprouts from the trees that we cut team that up with the planted screen um you now have 10 20 maybe 30 yards of growth to where there's no way they're going to be able to see through it they have to come into that food plot so if you're calling um, this is a great great opportunity to be able to see deer outside of your screens and they're coming, maybe they're not coming the direction you want them, so you can call and lure them to where they at least have to stick their nose into the plot to see you, if there's you know, anybody I, I've there. Never, I've never used a decoy before, but I can imagine in a situation like this, having a buck decoy out there where they have to come all the way out and into range to physically see that decoy instead of staying way back in the timber and look, say, oh, can I beat that up or can I not? They're no. going to have to come out and expose themselves That's to right. that decoy and to you. So I'm I'm so pumped about the the screen blend. It's got I don't remember how many how many species in it, um, but our listeners, when you call into Pure Air Natives, um, you get a ten percent discount on the. Sorry, I've already looked for it. It ain't in here. I took it to the fair to show people if they. I was asked. looking for the number. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and it's a lot more affordable um, than a lot of the other. It's a blend devo- designed specifically for this application. And so we're not putting in other really expensive species just to uh, meet meet some recommendations. Uh, these are designed specifically to provide growth, forage, and structure um, for your for your landscape. So check it out, Pure Air Natives. Six three six three five seven six four three three. That's their number. Give them a ring. But that's the cool thing about I think open closed and this seed blend it's kind of like the three 
Three series. sisters. Three sisters, but it's like the the right jab, the left hook, and then and the then uppercut. Uppercut. And it's yeah. like you can't stop Actually, I think me. you said it wrong. The Judy chop, the, the, the karate Judy, chop, the ninja, the, the ninja yeah. chop, the ninja star. Um, <laughs> it's it's like an unstoppable, deadly combination to um, increasing the huntability of a food plot, which is awesome. I, I want to take food plots to the extreme. And lastly, the number 11 is a way to bring them even closer into range by adding either a mock scrape, fruit tree, trees, something that's within range that's just one more little attraction that's a, um, a limited resource that is going to cause deer to come check it out. So we like the mock scrapes, but if you have time and then years in this, you could plant a fruit tree to where you're having some sort of, if you're Maybe you plant an Arkansas black fruit tree um, that's dropping apples during October, November to where you have that food source teamed up with limbs that provide scrapes, um, and it's all within range. I mean, win, win, win. I never get tired of winning. <laughs> it's a common theme. Winning <laughs> winning with your food plots. Well, here's, here's the cool thing about all of this, points 1 through 11, is we have solved – the fact that you have big plots, we can make them smaller. This 1.75 acres is a bigger plot, but we just made this plot itself. We turned a bigger plot into a small plot. We did that. We changed the way deer or the time in which deer are going to utilize it because we got bedding in, in two different locations, two different distances away. Um, we're not having deer really probably come in and out too much. It's, it's more of, a, I think, a consistent movement like, they're all getting here then. It's not like that skinny food plot situation we talked about earlier, um, that dash in and out. Um, and what was the other big food plot experience that we're talking about that we that we saw? We talked about uh, coming only in the cover of darkness. Yeah. By adding the edge feathering and Security by adding the screen, cover. you have cover now that gives them security because – they have escape paths, but they also aren't right out in the open. You I, see that a lot with huge crop fields. Deer get out there, they get real skittish, or they go out into a pasture, and they start running across it, and you're like, what are they running for? Well, a lot of times they're just running because they don't like the feeling of being right out in the middle of the open. And so you look at that with food plots. Deer may go out in there right at dark, um, and then the covered darkness is, and they're comfortable. We can make them feel comfortable during the daylight, and that's with secure cover. And it's cover secure cover around this whole entire food plot. That's and right. I mean, it's a couple hops away, and they're, they're in the cover. Completely cover. It's not like they're just getting to the timber where it's crappy timber. I mean, we've seen that a bunch in, in areas that have poor timber. They're in the food plot, and they get scared. They don't just stop at the timber line. They go through the timber and keep going because the timber is so crappy. We've got good cover right there along the edge. They're not going to go far if they get bumped by a coyote or something like that. They'll work right back in. So that a pretty well a wraps lot of problems. Up. A lot of problems solved right here. You just have to implement them. And, and that's that's so cool. So if you're a if you like to hunt food plots, um, but you you commonly have these problems or run across this, do these techniques. Promise it's the it's the knockout. One, two, three, punch. If you have more questions on this, info at landandlegacy.tv. That's how you can reach us. Uh, before we finish this up, we're wrapping it up. And we don't even have time to do a Would You Rather no. um, because we got to do another podcast, and it's 1030 at night. Sean Johnson left us a review. 
John. today. And I'm going to give him a shout-out because I want to encourage the rest of you to leave a, a review because Mr. Sean Johnson will most likely get a hat when we ha- when we launch him. Um, and that's for coming soon. Please bear with us. We're as frustrated as you are. Um, he said, well, I originally came across this podcast because of the Nine Finger Podcast. When Dan added all these other podcasts, I was actually thinking, why are you forcing me to download these other podcasts? If I had wanted them, I would downloaded them and would have just done it myself. But I'm glad that he did. The Land and Legacy podcast is probably my favorite one to listen to now. I own 55 acres, and I enjoy picking up tips on property improvements. Sean Johnson, you are the man. That's right. Fantastic. I appreciate man. I'm glad you are listening and following along and getting some valuable stuff out of the podcast. And I'm That's glad awesome. that he stepped out and, and actually listened to it the first time or second time and yeah. was like, okay. Gave it a, gave it a try. That's right. So Give anyway, hopefully you guys enjoyed this. Hopefully you'll be working to implement it, and hopefully that means more punch tags and more time enjoying nature. That's right. We'll see you guys next week. Peace out. Yeah.